What's going on, rock stars? Welcome to another episode of Fearless Rebel Radio. In this episode, I interview one of my idols, blogger, author, behavior change and disorder eating expert, and provider of no bullshit education on fitness and health for women, Krista Scott Dixon, on why the solution is your problem. In this must-listen-to episode, we talk about Krista's unconventional story of disordered eating and how she went from being the girl with glasses who was last in gym class to a leader in fitness and nutrition training. Why the demands on women and need to self-regulate are causing more women to develop disordered eating later in life. How you can tell if your healthy habits are starting to become destructive and whether you are addicted to self-help why the solution is your problem and why it's so hard to give up control. Why coming to terms with your body is a form of ninja crapping and doesn't mean that you accept yourself and how our cravings for approval don't actually feed us. Two things you can do right now to accept your body and I will give you a hint. These were things that I had not even thought of. They are amazing. And lastly, so much more, plus details on the upcoming Precision Nutrition Level 2 Coaching Certification and how it will help coaches make revolutionary changes in other people's lives. Before we get started, I just want to remind you to head over to summerinanen.com. That's I-N-N-A-N-E-N or summerthenutritionist.com to grab my free Rule Breakers Guide to Rockin' Your Bod. You'll get 10 missions designed to help you ditch the diet mentality and love the body that you have today. All right, let's get started with the show. Do you know where you are? You're in Fearless Rebel Radio, baby. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a certified nutritional practitioner, diet rebel, and food lover on a mission to help you feel hot damn fearless in your body. Fearless Rebel Radio is here to empower you to defy the standards and break the rules in order to radiate confidence relish in your uniqueness, and live life fearlessly on your own terms. Every episode, I will help you to do this by sharing practical advice, not-so-PG-rated rants, and interviews with fearless rebel guests. Welcome to the show. What's up, everybody? I am so amped up about today's guest. As soon as I started this podcast, this woman was one of the first people that came to mind. And so I was so excited when she agreed to do this. Today's fearless rebel guest is Krista Scott Dixon. Krista Scott Dixon, PhD, has run Stumptuous.com, a woman's weight training website since 1997. A former university professor, she's the author of several books, including the ebooks Fuck Calories and Consumed, a memoir of disordered eating. Krista's a specialist in behavior change and disordered eating, and she uses nutrition and exercise as a pathway to better living. She currently designs the PN coaching program with Precision Nutrition, which has helped 20,000 men and women change their bodies, health, and lives. She's also designed and coaches the Precision Nutrition Level 2 Coaching Certification, which teaches fitness and nutrition professionals how to coach effectively. I am so excited to have Krista here today because she is someone that I have a serious girl crush on in the most professional way possible. Krista has a genius ability to balance intelligence, sarcasm, and vulgarity in her writing, but it maintains complete credibility, and I have so much respect for that. So I'm pretty stoked to have her here today to share some insights with you. Krista, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So, you know, some people maybe haven't heard of you before, so I'd love our listeners to know more about your story and how you got to where you are today. Well, okay. So basically, I'd like to tell people, first of all, that um, I was always the kid picked last for teams. So just try to imagine that, right? Like, (laughs) I was the kid with glasses and braces and like totally awkward and, you know, just a total failure at sports and so forth. So, so I grew up as a, I wouldn't, I mean, I was, I was unathletic. I was always active, but I was unathletic. Um, And so my experience with fitness and sport and that kind of thing was always that it was a very exclusive 
exclusionary domain, um, you know, a place that I could never live or be or thrive in. And then uh, in university, uh, thanks to <laughs> the, the excellent diet and uh, diligent devotion to drinking that I uh, engaged in, <laughs> I, I gained about 50 or 60 pounds, which on a five-foot-tall body is just not a good scene. Um, and so there was this moment where I kind of realized, like, okay, I have to, I have to do something different here. And so I started to educate myself about nutrition, about working out, and and I decided I liked lifting weights because that's it doesn't it doesn't involve catching a ball, uh, it didn't involve playing team sports or otherwise humiliating myself. So I thought this was probably a good plan, and um, that's how I started. And as I went along, I discovered that there really was not good information for women. Men who were looking to train seriously, like there was. So this would have been in the early to mid '90s. Um, there was Shape magazine, right? But that was the time when women were told, "Do not ever lift anything more than one or two pounds, because yeah. something terrible will happen to you. You'll turn into a dude or whatever." Um, <laughs> and and I I knew that was crap. Um, and I also had access to a university library, so I could actually go and, and read the physiology textbooks, read the studies, read some of the higher level coaching books. And so I knew what the real information was. And it really started to frustrate me that other women would not have access to this. So I created a little website in the mid-90s. It was originally called Krista's Funk Palace because I was really into <laughs> funk music at the time. So awesome. uh, and I designed it with like the latest technology of the day, which I think was like sparkly GIFs or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, um, but it eventually grew into Stumptuous as I started answering more and more questions, right? Like a woman would ask me a question and I would think, oh, that's really... That's a good question and I would go and find the answer and then I would think that other women would want to know it. So it grew very organically just like my interest in, in fitness and nutrition and uh, so of course I was working as an academic at the time but spending a lot of time farting around on the internet answering questions about nutrition and fitness and as it turns out you can make a job out of that. <laughs> so <laughs> here I am. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. And I like I think it's, you know, would you agree that your you know your website's really evolved from not just, you know, weightlifting, but really kind of, you know, all sort of issues with women and a lot of it's really your raw kind of personal stories and rants. Yeah, definitely true. And I think you know, for women so much of this comes from our stories and I I think that even in 2014 we are finding domains of life in that that nobody talks about publicly but that we all go through or that many of us go through and so it's sort of a weird dichotomy for me that that so many of us are experiencing certain things but finding it so hard to find information about them or or hear other people's stories about them it's like we're all walking around with this container of untold stories all the time so it struck me that one of the most um radical acts in a way is, is telling our own story, uh, even if it goes against the conventional narrative, and maybe especially if it goes against the conventional narrative. So the site, as you're right, as you rightly say, has definitely evolved over the years, just around things that I'm interested in talking about, or things that I've gone through, and um, especially things that were surprising or or unexpected, like having a chronic injury, or going through early menopause, or, you know, developing disordered eating. Like, these are things I didn't anticipate that took up a fair amount of my mental real estate and that after they had passed, I thought, hey, maybe someone else would want to know about this, especially from the non-euphemistic perspective of a real person. Because sometimes you go to research something and uh, the language is very euphemistic, right? Like with menopause, they talk about mood swings. Uh, what I want to say to women is like, you're going to go fucking crazy. You're going to think that you want to stab your husband and, you know, like pull your hair out and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And I, I want to express things to people in the way that I think more of us experience them rather than in sanitized clinical language. Flowery language. You know, mm -hmm. the new mm -hmm. Dr. Oz term, flowery language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and like, you know, with that, I think it's amazing some of the stuff that you've kind of talked about with respect to your personal story because you are someone who's so well-respected in the fitness, fitness and nutrition world, but you still had kind of this struggle with disordered eating behind the scenes. Um, so, you know, would you mind kind of sharing a little bit more about your personal experience with that? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I want to say at the beginning that being in the fitness and nutrition industry does not keep you safe from disordered yeah. eating. In fact, 
probably 99.9% of people in the fitness and nutrition industry have some form of disordered eating. Um, and if you're like that 0.1%, just, you know, wait. <laughs> It'll happen, right? Um, because I think this is the nature of the industry. And, and part, I mean, it's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing, right? Sometimes people who have that inclination go into this business because they're drawn towards it. But, but sometimes you're a perfectly normal, quote-unquote, person um, who ends up in the industry and then becomes incorporated into the way of thinking and, and uh, reasoning or whatever um, and ends up there. And that was kind of more my story. I, I ended up there. And it was surprising to me in particular because I did not fit the conventional story of disordered eating. And so our conventional story of disordered eating is that you are a young woman or a girl uh, and you're white and you're middle class and you start at a pretty young age and you really, really want to be skinny and so you stop eating and you're an anorexic. And that's kind of where it ends. Whereas in my case, I was in my mid-30s. I'd never had any kind of you know, issue like this before. Uh, it was, it, it manifested in strange ways. Now, mine emerged as, I think, partially a result of cutting weight for grappling. Mm. Um, and so that was part of it. But another part of it was quitting my job um, and moving into the fitness and nutrition industry, where, whereas in academia, all you had to be was smart. Well, I knew I was smart, so that was cool. I fit yeah. in, right? Um, whereas in fitness and nutrition, oh my God, all of a sudden, I'm the kid that can't throw a ball. Uh, so, so I, I, you know, I felt I was starting at a disadvantage and I had to work extra hard to look and feel like the person that I thought I should look and feel like, which is kind of tricky if you're uh, a five-foot-tall bookworm of Eastern European descent, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you're, you're, you kind of already are shaped like a potato, so you're, you're not going to meet that kind of aesthetic standard that you assume a fit person looks like. So in the beginning, I think, and I think this is true of a lot of people, it manifested in a very innocuous kind of way. Uh, I just want to, I want to be a little better. I want to try a little harder. Oh, here's something that sounds cool. I'm going to experiment with this. I mean, I, I have a very experimental mindset. So I, I joke to people, like I've given myself just about every gym injury you can give yourself just because I try stuff. 20 rep squats. Oh, that sounds fun. Let's try that, right? CrossFit. Let's try that, right? Like, I mean, that back when CrossFit was like, no one had ever heard of it, right? Yeah. Um, so this kind of experimental mindset led to, oh, hey, here's this new diet. I should try this or this new way of eating or, hey, here's this thing called intermittent fasting, yeah. which no one had ever heard of at the time. I mean, someone emailed me about uh, fasting for Ramadan and I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's kind of interesting. I went and read the research. I thought, this fasting thing, that sounds kind of cool. Let's try that. So I kind of put myself in that place, like I said, partially with trying to be that perfect person and, and partially with just experimenting. And as I think you and your listeners probably know, dieting or you know, food restriction or nutrient restriction combined with training is pretty much the path to crazy, from, <laughs> especially from a physiological perspective, right? So I'm fasting, I'm, I'm training hard, I'm cutting weight for grappling, I'm competing, I'm working in a field where I feel like I don't measure up. It's really the perfect storm. And so it manifested very innocently at first, but began to take on more and more of a sense of urgency until I got to the point where I was finding myself doing really odd things. Like, um, I was just eating fat, like straight fat, like mm. oil, like butter, like coconut oil, like just spooning it right out of the jar. And I, I emailed um, John Berardi, who was, uh, I was work I had just started working with Precision Nutrition. I was like, yeah, have you ever heard of like, just fat cravings? Because we all know about sugar cravings, right? Chocolate cravings, whatever. Have you ever heard of straight up fat craving? And at the time he hadn't. He was like, oh, that's kind of crazy. And I'm like, oh God, John Berardi has never heard of my problem. Now, now I'm <laughs> now really <what>? screwed. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, later I came to realize that this is really a manifestation of a body and a mind and a spirit that is experiencing deprivation and restriction. Um, my body is trying to maintain homeostasis and and the body's game is the long game right so what you do this week it'll remember and it'll get you back next week or next month or next year so that was really my my path it was this kind of uh, excessive restriction alternated with periods of just complete 
chaos. Yeah. Um, and it and it took me a long time to even name it for what it was. I think that's the tricky part for so many people because I kept thinking, well, I don't, I don't want to be skinny. Like that made no sense to me. I want to be muscular and lean. Like I want to be rip shizzled. That's what I want. So so this can't be me, right? Or or I'm not an anorexic. Yeah. So that's not me. Um, I, or I don't puke. I'm a terrible puker. I can't, I can't even, I can't even puke when I've eaten like a bad shrimp salad and I <laughs> should puke. So, you know, everything <laughs> gets, exp- like I'm just a bad puker. So I thought, well, I don't puke on purpose. Right. So I didn't fit the profile. And, and so it took me a long time to even name what I was experiencing. Yeah. And I think like, I think that that's becoming, at least this is my opinion, and, and like, I'd love to know yours too, but I feel like that's becoming more common because as you said, there's kind of this conventional story where it's, you know, the young female, uh, you know, like teenagers, that's where we tend to see or think of or associate with disordered eating behaviors. But in my experience, like I'm seeing it so much more developing with women later in life. Mm-hmm. And Well, I do think that the seeds are probably planted at a young age as, you know, when I look back at kind of my own uh, history with disordered eating and how it manifested and mine really didn't kind of become problematic until I was in my 30s either. But, um, you know, like, do you think it's happening more and more with women later in life? And like, why, you know, why are we seeing that transition? Like, why is it becoming uh, you know, something that more women are kind of suffering from at like a later stage and, and not when they're teenagers. One is that really like women's lives now are so incredibly stressful and not that women's lives throughout history haven't been stressful, um, but I think they're stressful now in a very particular way where we don't have a lot of outlets for self-regulation now. So if I'm in my 30s, 40s, 50s, I'm very likely working, uh, very likely have kids, I very likely have aging parents, I very likely have a whole host of responsibilities and daily life stressors that are weighing very heavily on me and I don't have my support system quite likely. If I'm a woman in the 21st century, there's a good chance that I'm fairly socially isolated. I don't have my grandmothers and aunties and sisters and extended family around me. Uh, I, I probably live in a nuclear family uh, with a certain sense of social isolation, maybe in an urban environment where I don't talk to my neighbors, right? So, so all of the things that regulate human beings are increasingly absent. Mm. I, I probably don't go outside very often. I probably don't get lots of daily life, kind of just regular movement. Um, so all those things that would physiologically regulate me are absent. And then all the, all the things, all the addictions are, are omnipresent, right? Yeah. So, so all the substances that will give me a hit, some relief, some enjoyment, um, just some time and space from, from what I'm experiencing, even if it's just for five minutes until I'm consumed with regret, those are so much more readily available. Um, and I think one of the interesting parallels, and not that I mean to kind of say that this is in any way analogous, but one of the interesting stories I heard was around um, the guys, the American guys who went over to Vietnam during the Vietnam War got hooked on heroin, right? Which is like, you can't argue with the addictiveness of heroin. Mm-hmm. But when they came back, a lot of them, in fact, the vast majority of them did not stay addicted. Well, why is that, right? Isn't heroin like super addictive? Yeah. Well, there wasn't all the conditions that would facilitate it, right? The stress, the availability of the addictive substance, the social um, conditions that would enable it. So I think in part, you have to kind of step back and take a broader look at that's what's happening in women's lives right now. And then, of course, you layer on top of that the fact that the expectations for women are vastly more stringent than they were 100 years ago right? Um, 1914, like if you survived to 50 with all your teeth and, 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 and you know, most of your babies didn't die, like you're a superhero. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's a whole different experience. Um, and so I think women feel like they have to perform on every single front. You have to be a great wife, great mom, great friend, great worker, great daughter, great everything. It's just crushing. And food and eating and control of eating or uncontrol of eating is a very available, socially acceptable way 
to kind of self-regulate. Mm-hmm. And everyone, everyone's story is a little bit different, right? Everyone kind of comes to it in a different way, manifests a little bit differently. But, but fundamentally, that's the phenomenon. And I think we swing between chaos and control, right? Because we feel like, oh my God, I've just gone out of control. And then I'm going to engage in a whole variety of behaviors to get back in control, which of course then leads to losing control. But there's never before been so many addictive substances, availability, uh, social support for it, and just opportunities to engage and encouragement to engage in it, right? I mean, the amount of diet information out there is just absolutely epic. And now, now our social ideal is the CrossFit woman. Mm, yeah, which like, is... The, the unbelievable amount of work it takes to accomplish that is just kind of mind-boggling, right? The genetics, the, the hours of labor, whatever. So it's not just enough to like, throw on some lipstick and a clean sweater and go out. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you gotta, have, you gotta be rip-shizzled, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the rip-shizzled physique is now very distinctly something that is contrary to our evolutionary history, right? So again, 100, 200 years ago, you could be beautiful, but the way you were beautiful was more or less how women had been beautiful for millions of years, right? Whereas now it's like, if I want abs, I am defying millions of years of female evolution and hormones that wants that fat to be on my tummy. Right? Yeah, it should be there for a reason. Yeah, so there's kind of a cruel irony to it now that, that now we're really salmon swimming upstream here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, I think like one of the really interesting things you said was I think you know when you were talking about yourself you mentioned like mind body spirit restriction and I think that really ties in in a big way to kind of you know what what you're saying here in terms of why this is popping up more in women later in life is that that chaos of our lives and all the expectations really depletes us of those areas. Um, but and I think you know when we talk about uh, like disordered eating versus being like conscious and healthy, it's a really fine line. I mean, I think, you know, when, when I personally was at my most disordered stage, people were complimenting me on my dedication, on my willpower, on my physique, which obviously just fed the habits and created this connection between like having control over food and exercise and being a good person. And, you know, I honestly didn't realize that I was, that I had an issue until my body broke. Uh, and so how can someone really know when it's a problem and how can, you know, especially like personal trainers and stuff, because I was working with personal trainers and they were telling me to continue to cut calories and, and they were just feeding it. So how can people kind of recognize it in themselves and recognize it in others that it's becoming an issue? That's such a great question. And I could say that there are kind of empirical things to look for. So that, I guess I'd answer the, the question in a couple of ways. One is, what are the symptoms to look for, right? That's kind of a surface level thing. And I'll talk about that in a second. The, the, the other piece of it though is, what is the subjective experience of living inside you? Mm-hmm. Living inside your body. So let me tackle the first one first. And I, th- I think th- this is easier to see, right? And, and we don't always identify. Like I think a lot of folks listening will think, well, that's not me because I blah, 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 right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so kind of be aware of that little voice too. But I think some of the more obvious symptoms are things like uh, uh, restricting um, anxiety. Like, you know, what, what makes you feel anxious? What makes you feel distressed? Um, and that can be a whole variety of things. If you have to go out with friends or go, go to your restaurant or try a food that's not on your agenda, um, how do you feel? Do you feel anxious? Are you flexible? Are you able to accommodate change and disruption to your routine? How attached are you to having a routine? What do you notice about who you become when that routine gets disrupted? Um, and are you doing all the kind of obvious things, right? Are you excessively restricting? Are you, um, well, I was making spreadsheets. I can't even Me tell too. you the I spreadsheets. Spread- <laughs> oh too. my God, they were, they were color coded and there was like a pink for the days I binged and green for the days I was good and every day I would track my body weight. Like how tracky tracky are you? How yeah. OCD are you getting with this? Um, how much do you trust yourself to intuitively sense into where you should be because I think one of the definable symptoms is more and more and more cognitive control 
whether that's a spreadsheet, thinking about it endlessly, ruminating, planning, obsessively preparing, like how much of this is living in your brain, in your conscious, planny, thinky brain, which kind of leads into the second piece, which is the experience of it. Um, and you said this piece about consciousness. Disordered eating, by definition, is, is, is a way to be unconscious. And so the painful part of recovery of disordered eating is that once you take away your coping mechanism, you have to feel what it's like to be present in your life. And that, to me, is really one of the more defining hallmarks of what disordered eating is. Are you fundamentally present in your body and your life? And so... Um, in terms of food choice, the difference would be, am I choosing what to eat because someone told me it was paleo or vegan or acceptable or whatever, or am I choosing what to eat because I know with a deep internal wisdom that this is benefiting my body? And that's a whole different experience because if you can't say for sure that you can sense into those cues, then there's some work to be done there. Right, and I think there is there's like that one percent of people in the world and little kids who have this intuitive concept of when they're hungry, when they're full, um, and and what they like and what they don't. And most of us kind of grow out of it, right? We entrust that sense to other people, other things, other structures. But that's really the source of our ability to choose. And so, in disordered eating, we get about as far from that intuitive eating. As, as humanly possible. Right, totally. Everything lives in our heads. Everything, right? So if I say like, well, how do you feel when you eat that? Well, I don't know. I don't know how I feel. Okay, <laughs> work to be done, right? So it comes back to this, and you, know, you use the term conscious, and I think that's such a good term. I might even say mindful, but maybe I wouldn't even say mindful. I might even say bodyful or something, right? There has to be a deep somatic awareness who are you in this moment? Can you track with yourself, right? Be with yourself. If something's uncomfortable, can you tolerate it? I mean, that's, that's really the question. Yeah, and I think it really comes back to kind of, you know, like relinquishing control, you know? And, um, you know, I, one of your most recent blog posts you wrote, you know, when you fight your body and you declare war on it, you declare war on you. And I think that, you know, that like it's so hard for people to give up that resistance and control. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think we need to have compassion for that, too, because I think having control or the feeling of control, right, because we don't really have control, but the no. feeling of of control is something that is soothing to humans. And I think different humans crave it more than others. Um, but there are many of us who, who seek control or the illusion of control because it's calming, it's soothing. And, and if we can feel like we're in a, as much control as possible, then it lowers our level of distress. We don't have to endure the discomfort of thinking, oh my God, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, or life is chaos, or <laughs> there are things happening that I can't I can't control. Like aging is a perfect example. Uh, I, it's funny because I remember how I felt when I found my first gray hair. I had just turned um, 39 and <laughs> I think I was 39 or 38 and I would spent, it was funny because I was spending my birthday lying on the couch feeling sorry for myself because I had just dropped a barbell on my foot and just <laughs> smashed the juice oh, no. out of it. So I was like, oh great, this is, this is how we roll into our 40s here. But so on my 39th birthday, I got up and I found a gray hair and I was like, but my reaction was, wow. Wow, my body doesn't give a shit what I want. It's going <laughs> to execute its software program without me. Like, no one asked me, do you want a gray hair? Or do you need to, like, did I need to sign off on getting a gray hair, right? My body was like, yeah, I'm driving this bus. And I kind of loved it because I was like, oh my God, I'm so not in control of this process. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Right? And it was kind of groovy. I, I felt this sense of like deep... Uh, relief and security because I was like, oh man, my, my body knows what it's doing. <laughs> it's, again, millions of years of evolution. It's got this thing down. I've only been here for 39 years. My body's got 2 million years on me. So that was kind of cool. But I think for a lot of people, aging is a deep experience of being out of control. And I think to get back to your earlier question about women in midlife, I mean, when you hit your mid-30s, things start changing and it's really 
weird, especially if you've had children, right? Stuff just happens after you've had children in your body, like you didn't even know it could happen. <laughs> um, so I think when we are threatened with loss of control, we instinctively try to get it back, whether or not that actually is a workable project um, or otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think the whole thing with, with aging too is, I mean, so much of our culture ties self-worth to appearance like it's something that I talk about often is how like our culture has kind of intertwined you know our body's esteem and our self-esteem and if you hang your self-esteem on your appearance and the way your body looks like you're going to be in a lot of trouble because things are going to change and you know you can't control that (laughs) at all yeah and I think the big lie of the fitness industry is that everything is within your control. It's almost like this kind of physical meritocracy, right? Like Mm. if you don't look exactly like you think you should look, then you've done something wrong. You haven't worked hard enough. You didn't do the right workout. You didn't eat the right combination of food. For the longest time, I looked for the combination of foods that would make me not hungry. Because I read like all these people saying, oh yeah, when I did keto dieting or whatever I did this, I just wasn't hungry and the weight just fell off me. And I thought, oh, that sounds awesome. So I spent years hunting for this kind of magic bean of, of things where I wouldn't be hungry. And then it dawned on me, maybe I'll just be hungry sometimes and maybe that will be okay. So I think in our industry, there is this mantra that you can have anything you want, you can be anything you want, you can do anything you want, and all you have to do is hit on the right combination of stuff and work really, really hard. And if you haven't achieved it, that means you have excuses or that means you haven't found it yet. And I think on the one hand, I love the idea of being empowered to change, to transform. At the same time, that message is really almost disempowering because it makes me feel like crap. Mm-hmm. If I'm up and I haven't gotten what I want, I think, oh, this must mean I suck. Well, that's not really a plan for a great life, is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, I think like people almost get addicted to fixing themselves. Like you, you, yes. know, you mentioned the food and I went down that rabbit hole so hard. Like maybe I'm just missing kelp from my diet. And, yes. you know, like you're just <laughs> looking for this food solution to this whole, this other problem. Like, you know, the food, like the, that fixation on food as a solution becomes, um, like that's just a side effect of the issue kind of, uh, you know, with your thoughts and, you know, your feelings and your, and your relationship with yourself. But in, I think like our society is almost becoming like addicted to self-help. And I feel like that takes away from living, you know, like you spend so much time on the internet trying to find like what food to eat. It's like go outside and fucking play play with your dog instead, you know? You're so you're so right. And the other problem with being addicted to self-help and, and addicted to the, sol- the, the problem-solving aspect is that you think, like it's so poignant, right? You think you're solving the problem that you have when you're, like actually the solution is your problem. Like it's yes. kind of, I don't know, mind fuck really, this very circular kind, like a snake eating its tail, right? And so it's so tragic because I, I work with clients and they're like, oh no, I totally have my issues under control and here's how I'm working through them. I'm like, yeah, it's the working through that's actually the, causing you the most distress. And as you say, like, if we actually were able to experience our life in all of its amazingness and majesty and just get outside with the dog and experience the pure unfiltered joy of that we'd all be much much better off Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think you know I'm always aware of the client and I was this client so I like to say we smell our own shit so (laughs) we we clients that are kind of like us but there's a kind of client that I call the I know I know client as in like oh yeah no no I know all that like I'm really experienced I've been doing this for ages that to me is a really interesting and difficult kind of client to work with because they're so firmly entrenched in thinking that they are already solving the problem when in reality of course the problem is not a lack of expertise or a lack of experience it's it's the headspace that they've created for themselves yeah exactly now I want to kind of switch gears here because you and talk a little bit about body image because you have pretty strong feelings about bloggers who write posts about you know quote unquote coming to terms with their body and I you know and I 
I am fully guilty of having written one or two of those in the past before I really kind of understood, you know, what body acceptance or what I like to call just not giving a shit about, you know, my body (laughs) meant. But, you know, I think that those types of posts, they obviously, you know, they always get shared. They always get likes. People are like, oh, my God, you're so brave. Um, You know, can you kind of explain your feelings on that a little more and why you see that as a problem? Well, that's such a good question. And the first thing I want to say is that we should all have compassion for being in that headspace because we've all been in it. We're all in it. Like we all dip in and out of it from time to time, right? And so, and, and this goes back to, I mean, it, it masquerades as solving the problem when it, in fact it is part of a problem. So I, I think we want to definitely forgive ourselves as much as possible for being in a whole variety of dysfunctional headspaces because they're so seductive, they're so appealing, and they feel good, right? They feel good. Like if I can say to myself, you know what, I'm just going to, you know, um, I have this really ugly, disgusting piece of myself, but I'm just going to be okay with it. Like that has a, a, that feels good in that moment to say that, right? Like somehow I'm, I'm feeling courageous and that's very gratifying. So I, I, I always try to be very understanding and, and people are at different stages in the process, right? But to, if we take a step back and really ask ourselves, like, what's going on here? Like, if we consider the totality of this, what is going on here? One of the pieces I think is really interesting. And again, we smell our own shit. Like, I'm as, I'm as guilty as, this, uh, uh, as anyone else. Um, one of the very interesting pieces of this is the confessionality of it, Right. I am confessing on the internet to something that is shameful to me. And that's very intriguing to me because I feel like the confessional has this interesting history uh, throughout humanity, right? And we've all um, deployed it in different kinds of ways. But there's some need we have as humans to take those things inside of us that we've shamed about and somehow share them. And in the 21st century, they're getting shared in very interesting ways. So the first question I ask myself is, why does it feel important to me to talk about my stuff on the internet? Right? Like that's kind of the first (laughs) interesting question, right? And then the second piece of that is something I call ninja crapping, which is basically like, I'm going to crap on myself first, like a ninja, like I'll be in there faster than anybody else. And I'm going to tell you all the things that are wrong with me before you can get to me. Because if I do that, then you can't criticize me. So it's a way of avoiding shame. If I can point out to you, hey man, look, I'm, no, I already know I'm a piece of shit, I'm a fat fuck and I suck, then, then I've like covered all the bases because you can't possibly shame me. So it's a, it's a mode of self-protection that I think is, is, again, you know, completely understandable. But if we step back and we look at the big picture, we start to go, okay, like, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. <laughs> What's happening here where I think that my cellulite is so important that I have to kind of make a big deal about it to an, a potential audience of several million people. Um, it's just a very interesting thing. And, I mean, the other piece of it, though, is that these confessionals have value, right? They're not without value. So someone might read it and think, oh, my God, there's another woman in the world who's struggling with this, right? There's this kind of consciousness raising that, like, oh, my God, I thought I was the only one. Now I know there's at least one other person. And, and so we create connection. I mean, it's almost a striving for connection. So it's like this kind of oscillation. On the one hand, we're like, I feel shame and I want to withdraw and I want to kind of not connect with you. I want to show you how disgusting I am. And at the same time, I yearn for connection. I want you to see me. I want you to understand me. I want you to get me and see the pain. Um, and that comes out as this really screwed up <laughs> ball of stuff. Yeah. And the, I mean, the other layer to it too is, and, and I say this as a, you know, an affluent uh, first world white bourgeois woman. Yeah. We tend to think that everyone wants to hear about our shit. I <laughs> 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 like... Like, the world needs to know about my cellulite. This is very, this is critical information, right? So, um, so I think that's always an interesting piece as, as well, the, the utter conviction that white bourgeois women have that everyone else needs to hear about their stuff. Yeah. And that's an extremely important thing. So, I mean, I don't know if that truly answers your question, but I guess what I'm calling for is almost like a radical reconceptualization 
of what it means to speak honestly about our bodies and how we inhabit them and how we experience them without going down that road of ninja crapping and shame and, and in a way reproducing the relationships that have made us feel crappy about ourselves in the first place. So if I say to you, you know, well, my body is imperfect, I realize that, but I'm okay with it. I'm implicitly buying into the idea that there is something wrong with my body, totally. right? That I, that I have to reconcile myself to living in this hideous container. Um, so I think we really want to question, what are the foundational assumptions that I am making here? Have I thought through this completely or am I just making myself feel better by responding in this way? And if you are, that's okay, right? I mean, we are where we are. We self-regulate in the way that we need. But it's just, I, I want to encourage people to push it further in their thinking. Yeah, and I think I think some of it comes to, you know, whether it's conscious or not, like, you know, a need for approval. Yes. Uh from from other people. Like like, okay, I'm saying I'm okay with this, but I'm wanting everyone else to say you're amazing so that I can then actually feel okay with it. And then you're still, you know, that's that's an issue in and of itself because you're requiring other people's approval for your own self-worth. Um, and, you know, I, I like so I always say to my clients to, you know, kind of censor when they apologize to people, because that's another way that we buffer ourselves, um, like where we crap on ourselves first before allowing other people to potentially cast negative judgments against us. Mm-hmm. And the thing about getting approval, too, is let's say you approve of me. Like, let's say you look at me and you're like, oh, dude, you're so awesome. You know, honestly, that gives me nothing anyway, right? Like, if I'm someone who needs that approval and validation, it's, it's a, again, it's a bit poignant. Like, I will crave it, but it won't feed me, right? So even if you tell me I'm okay, I might feel good for 30 seconds or a day or something, but it won't last. Mm-hmm. I won't really feel like I'm awesome. Yeah, it's um, like, I'm just going around looking for my next hit, right? Yeah, it's like going on a diet for a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You exactly. feel great for that week, and then you're like, oh shit, the problems are still here. <laughs> exactly. Or I might just not believe you. Like, you might be like, hey man, you look awesome. And I might say, oh no, but you can't see this and that. And what you need to understand is that I'm really disgusting. And so I might disavow your approval completely as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, I mean, if we're, you know, because I think, you know, it's still really important to mention that we want women to be cool with themselves and to just be cool in their bodies. And that doesn't mean, you know, coming to terms with something. But for a lot of people, I feel like that's almost the first step. And if we're pushing, like, if we want to push women to kind of take it to the next level, you know, where should they, where should they begin? Like, I mean, where do you start with that? That's such a great question, and I have a couple of answers, and there's probably like a billion answers to this. All of them are correct, but I'll give you two of mine. One of the first ones to me was going and being in spaces where women, like I could see other women's bodies. And I remember in particular going to the University of Toronto, which is a very big university, um, and working out in their big main gym so the change room was absolutely humongous like huge and they had one of those like multi-person shower things so you didn't really have a stall to shower I think there were a couple like off in the corner but generally it was this kind of huge communal shower so you might get like 20-30 women and they're all showering at the same time and then of course hundreds of women in the change room so you know here I was able to see women of all ages women who were obviously athletes rugby players softball players sprinters whatever um, women who are obviously fit, but a huge range of body types, just mm-hmm. kind of being there, hanging out, being naked. It was a very crunchy kind of space too, right? People were just kind of naked. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but going and looking at the range of bodies and understanding the diversity there and just kind of understanding the, the image of what it means to be a fit woman, quote unquote, is just such utter bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. Go to some place where there are fit women and look around and look at how they look. Um, so that's piece number one. That's kind of a cognitive thinky piece. But the second piece, I think, is we really want to learn to inhabit our bodies. And this is, this is the thing that takes the work because we have gotten away from this, right? We, we work in jobs that don't reward our physiological needs. We work in environments that are essentially anti-human, right? The wrong kind of lighting, the wrong kind of spaces, whatever. So... I would say devote yourself to the practice of living in your body 
and really starting to learn its cues and its what it's like and what it does and, and how sadness manifests as a physical feeling or what happens when you feel anxious and what, that, what lives in your chest when you feel anxious or how, how do you know when you're hungry or sleepy or, or anything else because I think we've become so alienated from the physical experience of ourselves even physicality as a way of knowing right like you know we get gut feelings about things or or there's something physical that gives me you know gives us an aversion to someone or an attraction to someone else we tend to not sense those anymore or or ignore them so really get a sense of what it's like to live in your body physically and practice the gratitude of that because there's some pretty awesome stuff going on um i think it now i forget who talks about this but there's a Buddhist monk who talks about smiling to your liver mm. and doing this kind of gratitude meditation where you kind of think about like what's going on inside you right now and how really magical that is and so you smile at your at your different body parts and kind of say hey man thanks like liver I know that you're keeping me from dying <laughs> right now yeah. you're, you're processing toxins and I have no idea you're even doing it um, but you're you're making sure that that margarita I just drank is not gonna kill me <laughs> so so practicing gratitude in your body and learning how it feels I think is so critical and I mean women are gonna listen to this and think oh that sounds like airy-fairy bullshit or uh. whatever but but this is where neuroscience is going this is where neuroscience and psychology is going is understanding that the thoughts that you have, the feelings you have, are actually reflections of physiological states. You just aren't conscious of them. So the more you can become in tune with what is occurring moment to moment in your body, um, the, the happier you're going to be. And the other piece to that is when we get into cognition, when we get into thinking, we tend to live in the land of the should, right? The near future, the past, what has happened, what could happen, what should happen. Whereas our body is a very much right now experience. Um, and I think particularly the example of sound, right? Sound can happen in any other moment than right now, really. Mm. So the more we attune to our physiological states, the more we're able to inhabit a world in which we deal with what is actually happening. Because so much of our distress in our bodies is like, well, this shouldn't be happening. I shouldn't be fat. I shouldn't be old. I shouldn't be sick. I shouldn't be whatever. I shouldn't have a freckles or curly hair, whatever. Well, you friggin' do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and our body doesn't care about the shoulds. It cares only about what is. And so if we can kind of get over that resistance to what is and to be able to track with it and be in it, um, I think that's a really, really helpful pathway. But I mean, it's a practice. It's a long-term, lifelong practice. And it's not easy. But it is awesome <laughs> once you see the results. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, and a lot of that just comes comes down to, I mean, it's overall mindfulness, which we've come so far away from, part and parcel because we're trying to resist what our, what our body's actually feeling. Like, we, you know, it's more comfortable to just suppress things. But then also because of, like just the chaos that's constantly going through our mind and the way that technology has essentially rewired our brains to not be able to just focus on something as simple as breathing. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I think it's really cool that you brought that up because I've never actually kind of thought about mindfulness as it relates to, you know, feeling more comfortable in, in your body and just being, being grateful for those, for those things. Mm hmm. Um, and the, you know, the first point that you made about being in spaces where you can see other women's bodies, like I, I believe that, you know, we, we hold the power to be able to define what's beautiful to us. I mean, beauty is really a perception. And so, you know, if you're constantly surrounding yourself with images of like, let's say CrossFit women or, you know, models or whatever, of course, you're going to be judging and comparing yourself against that. But if you actually step outside of that and start to see what real women look like, like you said, going to the gym, um, what I do is, you know, I have like Pinterest boards where I just post women of all shapes and sizes and I spend time like five minutes a day looking at that stuff and it has rewired what I see as a standard of beauty and it's just everything I don't know if you agree with that kind of if you agree with that at all yeah I think that's a great practice and there's a couple more pieces I might add to that one is and this is gonna sound a little bit crazy <laughs> but um give yourself the option to not be beautiful because I think and, and I mean 
everyone loves to feel beautiful. It's a, it's a wonderful feeling to feel attractive and loved and appealing. I mean, that's awesome, right? So let, let, I think we can all agree that feeling beautiful is fantastic. Um, but there's also the, I think, I want to put the option on the table of being ugly and having that be okay, right? And, and, and I'm being yeah. a little bit all or nothing here, right? Um, it's not just one or the other. But I think for so many women, the fear of not being beautiful is kind of terrifying, right? Like if I'm not beautiful, then whatever, whatever is going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of want to get that option on the table and say, it's okay to not be beautiful sometimes or all the time or whenever you like. It's totally your call. Um, so, and, and, and I think those two things can exist together. I don't, I don't see that they're mutually exclusive at all. I think really what we're talking about is this very interesting continuum of experiences that one could be having. And the other piece I wanted to mention is, if you can find someone who is truly sane about this kind of stuff, go and hang out with them and see how they do it. And for me, I always say that my fitness model is my grandmother. And she's like 88 or 89 now. Amazing. And, and she's one of those like depression era women who like was raised in abysmal conditions and somehow survived. And she will like, she'll be that one with like a shotgun, like the last one standing at the, the zombie <laughs> apocalypse right and and she lives by herself in a little cabin in in remote northern Ontario and like hauls wood and has a garden all this stuff and it's just tremendous and and so I go every year to see her and I observe her like how does she think about herself how does she think about the world and something bad had happened last time I was there some some family thing had happened and I was asking her how she felt about it and she said which I think is like the zeitgeist she was like well, what can you do? You just have to keep going. And I was like, wow, that is like the mission statement right there. What can you do is an acceptance of reality, right? And you just have to keep going is an expression of you just have to keep acting in the world. So to me, it was like this kind of amazing existential epiphany. I mean, to her, it was just like whatever, right? She she was off to hit a bear in the face with a shovel or something. But um, so so really try and find like, and I say this because in fitness and nutrition world, we're surrounded with people who have the same crazy as us, uh-huh. right? And when you're around people who have the same crazy as you, their crazy seems normal. It's the same way in academia. Everyone's bananas in academia. They're all stressed out and workaholics and whatever. So, so when you're in it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's totally reasonable. I'll work, I don't know, a bazillion hours a week and get all burned out, right? But when you step out of it, you're like, oh, no, wait a minute. That's crazy. It's like, it's like traveling. It's the same thing. You go to a different country and they're crazy there, but just in a different way than you're crazy at home. So you're like, oh, these people are crazy. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. just decontextualizing. So, so find someone who is crazy in a different way than you. And for fitness and nutrition people, get outside of that world. Go and hang out with people who are not in that headspace. Um, and at times, yeah, it'll be frustrating because they'll want to know why you're doing the thing that you're doing. And sometimes they're wrong and sometimes they're right, right? Sometimes that's a very good question. Why am I doing this? Huh? Never, never really thought about that. <laughs> yeah. um, so so I, I really would encourage women to expose their lives to a whole variety of mindsets, a whole variety of bodies and experiences, and smash open this idea of what is beautiful, what is ugly, why that's important, why you need it, why you have to do it, whatever. Um, so I'm really, I guess I'm arguing in favor of an additive paradigm. So rather than saying, oh, it's better to be this way or that way, to say, no, 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 try on a bunch of ways of thinking and experiencing and living in the world and go be a tourist, right? Go and visit people who are different than you. And and for me, one of the other people I like to go and visit (laughs) is my husband, like, because he has a totally different experience of being in his body or thinking about food. And I study him like an anthropologist. Uh I'm like, like, okay, so when you eat that, like, how do you think about yourself? And he's like, I don't know, it tastes kind of good. And then when I'm full, I stop eating. I'm like, that's fascinating. <laughs> I have like my clipboard. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's but amazing. It, it keeps you grounded, right? So, so get outside your world. Yeah, diverse as, as much as possible. Diversify, right? Like, yeah, yeah. When you're constantly in that like one-dimensional scenario, then that's what really can pollute your mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, as we wrap this up, the last question that I like to ask all of my guests is, "What is the most fearless thing that you have done?" 
Okay, so I'm sure a lot of people talk about like, oh, I go, I went skydiving or whatever. <laughs> For me, the most fearless thing was actually being willing to inhabit myself fully. And it's interesting as I say that, there's an emotional response in me. Like I'm almost getting a little bit verklempt, so I know that I'm hitting the good stuff here. Yeah. Um, but for me, the most fearless thing was to live in a completely authentic, fully sensing, fully experiencing way. And we sometimes think we're doing that. We're like, oh, look at me. I went sailing or I went horseback riding and I'm really living, right? No, no, no. I mean, hey, if that scares you, because I mean, horseback riding scared me, so I deliberately went and did it, right? Yeah. So that, that, I mean, that's a part of it, too. That's kind of fun stuff. But really, I mean, I'm talking about getting to that core nugget of yourself that even thinking about accessing it makes you want to puke, right? That's when you know <laughs> you have hit on the place that you need to start digging and investigating. And so for me, the most fearless thing I ever did was go to that place and really explore it and and be in it. Um, and to me, physical fear is, I mean, hey, it's scary. Like I've, I've been in situations where I've been so scared I thought I was going to pee my pants, right? And I was like, okay, I have, to, I have to wiggle around to actually engage the sympathetic nervous system before I pee my pants because I don't want the parasympathetic, you know, freeze response kicking in. So before we get like pants soiling, let's do something here. So, so I have been in situations where I have been that physically scared. But I don't know. Physical fear is kind of like physical pain in the sense that once the acute moment has passed, it's not that big a deal, right? Yeah. Things just hurt. Whereas anyone who's had a long-term injury knows the real pain is the emotional pain of an injury. Like it still hurts. It doesn't hurt any less, but it's when it's where your mind and emotions go once the immediate moments of pain have have gone. Mm -hmm. That is the truly scary thing. So and it sounds so banal to say, oh, go inside yourself and can... No, no, no. But it, it's shit scary. It's, mm -hmm. shit, it's absolutely terrifying. And you will do any... You'll claw your own face off to get away <laughs> from that experience. So for me, that, that's what it was. I'm sure everyone has their own answer. But for me, that's definitely it. That's an amazing answer. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so uh, so what, like, what's next for you? Do you have anything coming up that you want to share with, with, with our listeners here? Um, well, I'm definitely really excited about starting to coach the Precision Nutrition Level 2 Coaching Certification. And I, I mean, I'm particularly excited because this is the first time that I know of that there has been a sustained long-term program of instruction for coaches. Because, and I'm sure like any fitness pros listening will know, no one really teaches you how to coach. Like, you kind of figure it out, you might read a book on it, whatever, but there's no place you can go really to learn how to be a nutrition coach mm -hmm. with those two halves together. And so, I mean, this program represents years of love and labor and research and experience and, you know, working with our 20,000 clients. And I mean, there's just a, a pool of knowledge there that is unsurpassed anywhere else as far as and so we're just about to roll it out as of late June. So I don't know if it'll be live when this podcast airs, but um, to me, it's just friggin' amazing. Like, so it's a different way of doing it. It's a different way of thinking about it. It's a different kind of topic. And I think it will really change the way that fitness pros, health pros, nutrition pros work in the world, the way they see themselves and the way that they operate in the world. Because part of it is, is, is working on themselves. So it's not like you can't, you can't just show up and be like, oh, I'm going to learn how to teach other people. It starts with you as a coach. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that gets to the scary place, right? I'm sure yeah. people listening are like, no, don't make me do that. <laughs> <laughs> but in order to do this work, you have to do the work on yourself. You can't coach anyone to a higher place than you yourself have evolved to. So we teach people how to how to get there. And That's to, amazing. And definitely, yeah, to go to go to the proverbial next level. So I'm I'm really stoked about this, and I and I hope it will be successful. But mo you know, more importantly, I hope that it will enable people to really make transformative change in other people's lives. Yeah, and that's really what we want at the end of end of the day. And I just think it's amazing all the stuff that you're doing. So where can people find you online? Well, you can find me at stumptuous.com. Um, you can find me on Facebook as Krista Scott Dixon. Um, you can Google Krista Scott Dixon. You'll probably find me in all different kinds of places. Um, but those are the two ones, I think. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all of your time and sharing your and sharing your insights with everyone. So definitely check out stumptuous.com. There's also the community on Facebook and Krista's ebooks, Fuck Calories and Consumed, which I will link to in the show notes, along with the uh, link to the Precision Nutrition Level 2 certification. And keep an eye on all that great stuff. So thank you so much, Krista, and rock on. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was awesome. Thanks for listening to today's show, everyone. I just want to remind you that you can head to summerinandin.com or summerthenutritionist.com to grab your free rule breakers guide to rocking your body with 10 missions to get you started to ditch the diet mentality and love the body that you have today. Also remember that we are now on iTunes, so you can head on over to iTunes and search Fearless Rebel Radio, uh, that's Rebel, R-E-B-E-L-L-E, to uh, subscribe, and I would be so grateful if you left me a quick review. It honestly takes a minute of your time, and it means the world to me. So please, if you enjoyed this show or any of the other episodes, just take two seconds to do that for me. And if you didn't enjoy the show, I want to hear about it as well. And you can grab all the past episodes on iTunes, or you can head over to summerinandin.com slash FRR to grab those. All right, until next time, rock on. Thank you.